Good morning, and welcome to the Wisdom Seeker Sunday School class. My name is Tammy Stewart, and today is Resurrection Sunday. It's going to be a very powerful and mighty gathering of the saints today in the Father's house. I just feel it. And don't you think that's wonderful? Amen. The last time I taught, I presented a part one on the key names of God in Revelation. We concentrated our attention on five of the 12 names of God listed in the last book. Today I'm teaching on five more names referenced in this mighty book of the apocalypse, which means an uncovering of things hidden, which are finally being revealed. And if you're looking at your handout, my key scripture is at the top. It's John 14, verses 12 through 14. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye ask anything in my name, I will do it. You can ask anything in his name. Well, which name? You know, the seven spirits of God, uh, we know, reveal his personality. The name Yahweh is the operational aspects of the will of God concerning his eternal purpose. Elohim is the God of love, power, and beauty. The name Elohim is truly the heart of our Father who loves us. Throughout the entire Bible, there are many names for God. Um, the last time I taught, we discussed Alpha and Omega, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Lamb of God, King of Kings, and the bright morning star. Uh, today, um, we're going to concentrate on the Word, Son of Man, Christ, Bridegroom, and Father. You know, by understanding these names better, it will show us how God desires to partner with us in establishing the kingdom of God and our placement here on the earth. You know, as I reflected on this uh, teaching, I, I thought about a bicycle, and it reminded me of the circle of God's ways. And I think it was the wheels especially, uh, uh, the connecting rods or the spokes between the hub and the rim. I didn't know this, but there are approximately 36 spokes for each wheel for a single rider bike. And you know, the spokes represented to me the names of God. You know, if one spoke gets loose or bent, 
um, it's going to upset the balance and it's going to cause that bicycle to wobble. And you know, wobble on a bicycle is that, that rocking movement that's kind of back and forth. Um, to resolve the problem, what you have to do is either tighten or replace the spoke to make the, the wheel of the bike run true again. Uh, you know, when we study scriptures and pray, the power from our exertion moves and tightens our understanding of the person of God in his many dimensions or his, his titles. And it propels us forward. You know, some of us, not us, uh, ignore some portions of the scripture for many reasons. But, you know, our walk is not steady and straight, uh, and we can tend to wobble spiritually if we don't believe in the whole word of God. I, I want to share a quick story. I was probably in first or second grade, and we lived in Peoria, Illinois, and uh, our neighborhood was real close to downtown. And so most of the fathers uh, rode the bus. It was very economical for them to do that. It was very convenient. My dad didn't, but uh, he was a mechanic, so he was kind of like everywhere. But uh, we, I liked our street because we were at one end of the street and it was a long street, and my brother and I would get on our bikes, and we would ride as hard as we could down this street. And we did it all the time. And so then the other kids in the neighborhood were kind of drawn to get their bicycles out, and we'd race up and down the street. And, it, and I know that sounds scary today, but back then, there just was not many cars uh, on the street or in the driveway. Some people didn't even have cars. And so it was really safe for us to be able to do that. Well, uh, one day, uh, one of the neighborhood boys came to me and he said, uh, he says, I have these playing cards. Well, in our house, we didn't have playing cards. <laughs> so I had never seen them before, so I thought that was rather cool. And so he was telling me that I needed to clip them on my bicycle because it would make this click, clickety-clack sound. And so I thought, well, okay, you know, he was kind of convincing me that would be a cool thing to do. So he gave me the cards and I asked mom for the clothespins. And so I put it on my back wheel and then I went and I got my brother's bike and I did the same thing for him. He was a little younger than me. And so then we started riding our bikes, but the, and I could hear that sound, which was unusual, but I wasn't riding very fast. And sometimes I felt like I was going in circles. So when my dad came home and he saw me with these playing cards on my spokes, and he said, why did you do that? And I said, well, it was a gift. You know, this friend in the neighborhood gave me these playing cards. And dad, listen, it makes this special sound. He said, well, um, yes, I hear that special sound. But you know what? It's, it's going to uh, hold you back when you ride your bike, especially if you race with the kids in the neighborhood. It's really not a good idea. And I was a little disappointed, you know, because I thought, you know, this may be different. He said, I'm kind of busy right now, but he said, this weekend, <clears throat> I'm going to give you something to put on your bike, and uh, you're going to just ride like the wind. Well, I couldn't wait for the weekend. So it was uh, Saturday, and my brother and I were in the front yard with our bikes, 
and my dad came around the side of the house <clears throat> and he was holding four very large, plump, fuzzy squirrel tails. Huge. These were mature squirrels. These weren't like young squirrels. And <clears throat> my dad's a hunter, so it, it really didn't surprise me, <clears throat> but the fact that he had four of them, and he said, now I'm going to put these on your handlebars, and then Cal will have some for his handlebars, and when you get on your bikes, you're going to ride like the wind, and you're going to win all the races. Well, I just thought that was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> and so I jumped on my bike, and my brother jumped on his bike, and down the street we went. And, of course, the other kids were uh, confused, uh, not sure what they thought about that, and uh, just kind of looking at us. But I knew that their fathers were the men that were riding the bus into town, going into the tall buildings, and they probably weren't hunters, but my dad was. And he has always been that way. And uh, so anyway, I think that they wanted the tails too, but you know, I don't think their dad was too keen on the fact that he was gonna go shoot some squirrels. So that's, that's a funny story, but at the time, you know, being six or seven, I thought, I thought that was the best thing ever. And I had them until they were just, there was barely any hairs on the tail, you know. I just, because I would stroke them and they would fly, you know, as I'd ride my bike. So the reason I told you this is because um, my dad was starting elementary school. Uh, and at that time, it was 1929, and we had the stock market crash. Well, <clears throat> that triggered the Great Depression. And I uh, heard a lot of stories about that growing up, and I know Dennis did too. But <clears throat> my dad uh, was the second youngest, and he was in a large family, and he lived on the outskirts of Peoria. And so he was kind of outside of town, and there were a lot of woods. And so during this period of time, the Great Depression, he would go with his older brother into the woods, and he had a rifle, and he would go and look for, oh gosh, squirrel, rabbit, pheasant, turkey, and maybe possibly a small deer. Because, uh, because of this economic crisis that was going on, there were no jobs, there was no money, there was no food, there was no gasoline. And uh, I also know the story about Dennis's dad, and he lived on a farm in Oklahoma. And he, at the time, was probably a young teenager, and uh, his parents said to him, uh, and there was woods all around where they lived, and they had a lot of land, and it was for farming, but there was woods and swamps, as a matter of fact, too. I believe there's some swamps. And so, <clears throat> His, his dad had said, you take the rifle, the family rifle, and you go out and you find us meat for today and don't come back until you find it. Now, that wasn't just that day, it was every day for a long time. So, <clears throat> looking at the two fathers, I <clears throat> realized later, I couldn't appreciate it at the time, but uh, they endured a lot of hardships, and they knew what it was like, or what it felt like, to go hungry, maybe not have a meal. 
because they were in big families, both of them. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to elaborate on this. I, I have a point for telling you this. Um, obviously, uh, the downturn that they had in the United States was, you know, for a long, long time. It just lingered and lingered and lingered. And so, you know, they eventually grew up and got married and had families. And when I look back on the things that happened in my house and things that Dennis has shared that occurred in his house, I can see where it was tough times, but it really shaped uh, the men the, the uh, husbands and the fathers that they were ordained to be in life. And uh, I can say that they were both uh, savers. They saved everything. They saved their money. Uh, they stretched the dollar bill as far as they could stretch it. So they were very careful going forward from that point. Well, <clears throat> to tie it in to, to you, um, as I was preparing this and thinking about it, I thought, you know, we, it's important that we know what the names of God mean and how that would impact us spiritually. And how would that shape us? Well, I think as you listen to my teaching, because this is really just introductory, I'm just sharing here. I don't have everything about these names. I have some information. But I think as you do your own research and pray, I just feel like the Lord's going to shape you spiritually in a more perfect way in order for you to serve him more effectively. And so that's why I wanted to share that little story because that's what I was feeling in my heart. Um, we'll go to the handout now. All right. Our first name is the word in the New Testament. And it uh, translates into two terms, logos and rhema. The logos is used extensively to convey the message of the gospel. Uh, think of the early church. The message was revealed from God through Christ, which was to be preached, ministered, and obeyed. It was the word of life, the word of truth, the word of salvation, the word of reconciliation, and the word of the cross. You know most of this. It's just kind of a review. But Logos words speak of overall purpose. And Rhema words are divinely inspired words for a specific moment in time. God will illumine a passage of scripture to us, and the Logos becomes the rhema for that time frame. At the end of chapter 19 in Revelation, um, it's the account of Jesus Christ, the glorious head of the church, and he's being called out to a new expedition. Now, it seems to be the great battle that was fought at Armageddon. These verses are a description of our great commander, and Jesus is seated in his empire, which is in heaven. So let's look at these scriptures. Chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. And I saw in heaven, and I saw heaven opened, 
And behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed. I want you to look at that and uh, think about it as we continue here. I thought this was interesting. And he was clothed, so notice it was kind of thrown around him. With a vesture dipped, and that dipped means moistened or stained with a part of one's person. And his name is called the word, obviously logos, of God, which is theos or, or the deity. Okay, now notice that the robe or the clothing that Jesus is wearing is loosely placed about him. Note that it is wet and stained with his blood. You know, Jesus died only once, but his blood is alive and speaking. Now, I apologize, this came to me later, but uh, it's not on your handout. Um, this is Hebrews 12, um, and it speaks about that his blood is speaking in this chapter. So if it's speaking, it's still alive. So verse 24, Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling and here's the key words I want to look at that speaketh better both of those things than of Abel better is a derivative of Kratos which is power from the throne meaning stronger or nobler so the blood of Christ is always fresh and damp Speaketh is lego, meaning to lay forth systematically, to build a structure so specific pieces of obedience are applied to the eternal pattern of the purpose of God. Now let's just keep going. I'm going to add to this. Jesus is also the trustworthy martyr and firstborn of the dead. So this is Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, <clears throat> um, this is basically the scripture is speaking of the precious blood of Christ that through the generations has covered and cleansed us from sins. Look at the word washed. It means to bathe the entire person with the blood of Christ. Wow. Okay, well, let me keep moving. After redemption, we receive a fresh sprinkling of the blood that provides a purging and it brings enablement, anointing, protection, you know, as we navigate our pathway as sons of God. Look at 1 Peter 1, 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. 
So Jesus' name is the Word or eternal Logos, which is his agenda and his identity. We have to continually keep our perspective guided by the Logos, which for us is the Bible. Okay, let's go to our next scripture. Uh, let me kind of do an introductory thing here. Um, <clears throat> the Church of Philadelphia um, showed love and kindness to each other. And they had an excellent spirit and an excellent church. Um, the people had, really, the personal character of Jesus Christ. As we read this, um, notice the acts of his government. He opens. He opens the door of opportunity. He opens the door of interest. And he opens the heart. But also, Jesus shuts the door. He shuts the door of opportunity. And he shuts the door to heaven against the workers of iniquity. Jesus is sovereign when he works. No one can hinder. So let's look at Revelation 3, 7 through 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for you have a little strength. Strength there is the word dunamis, and has kept terio, my word, logos, and has not denied. Denied there means to contradict or reject his name. So the Philadelphia church is commended here, but there's also a little bit of a gentle reproof to them concerning having just a little strength or a little dunamis. Remember, dunamis is the force of energy that would determine which kingdom will control the ground and bring the supply. It is also knowing the proper timing when to apply authority to manifest a miracle. You know, the assigned saints must keep the territory, speaking of us, which have been called to stand and faithfully obey God. All right, chapter 20 of Revelation uh, begins with the binding of Satan for a thousand years. Uh, by an angel from heaven. Verse 4 is the reign of the saints for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness, martyria, of Jesus, and for the word, logos, of God, and which had not worshipped proscuneal the beast. Neither his image, which means statue, neither received his mark, which means either an etching, a stamp, or a sculpted figure upon their foreheads, or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. All right. Um, these saints were decapitated, were raised from the dead, restored to life. Um, this is called the first resurrection. 
for those who serve Christ and suffered for him. Um, they willingly laid down their lives for the calling of God and did not worship or lie down and kiss the hand of the beast in reverence and devotion to him. Neither did they bow to his sculpted likeness or his mark of servitude. Um, you know, I started thinking about this. Today, we have such advanced technology. Uh, you know, it makes it easy to reproduce a person or an object uh, electronically or optically, like a hologram uh, created by a laser beam. Uh, remember the show Star Trek? And the catchphrase, beam me up, Scotty? Yeah, it's coming to pass. Um, let me give you the definition of a hologram. It's a three-dimensional image formed by the interference of light beams from a laser. A hologram manipulates light by controlling its flow and direction. And Satan does the same thing by trying to overtake light with darkness. All right, chapter 6 of Revelation. Six of the seven seals are open. Um, the verses we are going to read uh, are concerning the fifth seal. So this is Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. And when he had opened the fifth seal, and seal is a signet, and it's protecting from misappropriation. I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain, and look at what slain means. To slaughter or maim violently. For the word, logos of God, and for the testimony, martyria, which they held. And they cried loud, loud is megas, which means great. So they cried with a great voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest to repose or get refreshed. Yet for a little season, that's our cronus, a space of time, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed, put to death, as they were, should be fulfilled. So John saw the souls of the martyrs in the most holy place in heaven at the foot of Christ. God has provided a good place for those who were faithful unto death. And notice that they're not allowed a place any longer in the earth. Their loud voices are crying out to God to vindicate them. Again, remember, loud means megas, or the controlling influence upon a place. They are in heaven, and their megas voices are worldly and lasting only for a limited amount of time. They are given a white robe, and it's a mark of dignity, honor, and victory. They are told to enter into a state of tranquility and peace for a period of time until other martyrs who would be killed joined them. They are being refreshed and supported by the Lord for this time frame. 
So, our first title was the Word, who is Jesus, the Logos of God. And remember, Logos is a derivative of Lego, which means to systematically lay forth. It's the word of purpose being set down. Jesus' blood is upon his clothing, which is thrown loosely around him. The saints who were violently killed or beheaded are given white robes and await Jesus to avenge the shedding of their blood. Wow. So we're looking at the book of Revelation and specific scriptures that mean the word. Any comments? I realize it's a little heavy, but um, I really felt I needed to go there. All right, our next title is uh, Son of Man. Okay, Jesus as the Son of Man humbled himself to be truly man and at the same time the eternal victor. Uh, Jesus very often referred to himself as the Son of Man in the Old Testament. Daniel used this term to describe his character his mission, and the kingdom of the Messiah that will be set up in the world in spite of all the opposition of the powers of darkness. So let's look at Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So Daniel pictures God the Father on his throne of judgment, judging the great world empires and using the name Ancient of Days. Um, I was not aware of this, but it really alternates with the title Most High in the New Testament, which means the highest or the supreme God. So Jesus was the son of the highest, which speaks of taking the high places for the kingdom of God. Jesus ascended to his Father and our Father, to his God and our God. He was brought near as our high priest. The Lord Jesus is represented as having a mighty influence upon this earth as the Son of Man. Jesus also clothed the term Son of Man with enriched meaning by identifying himself with guilty humanity by giving his life a ransom for many. Look at Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Ransom is the redemptive price Jesus paid, but it also implies to loosen something. The blood of Christ loosens, covers, and cleans our sins.
in uh, Revelation chapter 1, John's account of what he saw when he turned to see the voice and then a wonderful scene of vision opened itself to him. He saw a representation of the church as the seven golden candlesticks. Then he saw a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of the golden candlesticks. The glorious form in which Christ, the Son of Man, appeared overpowered John. And when he came to him, and I think that what I noticed here was he, Christ was not in a blood-stained garment. So let's look at this. Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. So John was overpowered by this, and, and it was the greatness and glory of Christ that came upon him. You know, he was familiar with Jesus from other encounters, but this one was truly magnificent. All right, this next passage is the vision of a harvest. And a harvest sometimes, you know, signifies cutting down of the wicked, and sometimes it, it uh, means the gathering of the righteous. <coughs> this uh, passage seems to represent God's judgments against the wicked. The Lord Jesus is sitting possibly on a chariot cloud with a crown on his head, which signifies the authority he has to do whatever he chooses. And... Um, I think I'll leave that thought. Let's read Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. And here's another thing I learned. Uh, a synonym for Son of Man is the Lord of the Harvest. And, you know, that phrase is used a lot in Matthew and Luke. Lord of the harvest. Let's keep going. Having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud. And <clears throat> thrust here means to wield, which means, you know, to handle the sickle very skillfully and reap. For the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud, here's another thrust, it's a different word. Uh, it means to throw down or strike, and it also it means to pluck. 
in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Um, you know, harvest work is to thrust the sickle into the crop and reap the field. You know, here Jesus, represented as the Son of Man, uses the sickle as a weapon to skillfully and powerfully remove the harvest. You know, we know harvest time is when the crop is ripe or mature, but the second thrust is to strike down the harvest because the measure of the sin of men is now filled up and the earth shall be reaped. Thoughts? Anybody? Our next name is Christ, which means the anointed Messiah. You know, Jesus taught his disciples to believe in him as the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed King of God. So, we begin this section with the glorious appearance of Jesus Christ coming to the Apostle John and delivering this revelation. Now, we actually read this verse 5 earlier, but we're going to reread it with verse 6, emphasizing this time the name of Christ. So, Revelation 1, 5 through 6, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen so Christ is the faithful witness who cannot be deceived and cannot deceive us he is the firstborn from the dead he is the prince of the kings of the earth, and by him their power is limited. You know, sin leaves a stain on humanity, but the shed blood of Christ washes us clean. We are kings who can overcome the world and priests who have access to God. Praise be to Christ. Amen. Wow. Chapter 11 um, a measuring reed is given to the Apostle John to take the dimensions of the temple and then comes the sounding of the seventh trumpet and what is to follow. So Revelation eleven fourteen through 15. The second woe, and woe is an exclamation of grief, it means a deep sadness, is past, and behold the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. You know, there are loud and joyful acclamations of the saints and the angels in heaven. They thankfully recognize the right of God and Savior Christ to rule and reign over all the earth. They give him thanks because he has taken to him his great power. They rejoice that his reign will never end. No one will ever wrest the scepter out of his hand. And our last uh, scriptures in this section are in Revelation chapter 12 concerning the 
contest in heaven between the angelic forces and the demonic forces. So Revelation 12, 7 through 11. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now I'm going to stop there, because as I go into verse 10, what I recognized in my interpretation was that there's a fourfold uh, progression of restoration from the throne of God. So when I start with verse 10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, and so the first stage of the fourfold progression is voices, which begins the inception of God's plan. Uh, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. So if we look at strength, it is dunamis, which means to be explosive. And this is the, the second stage, which is thunder. So it's an explosive atmospheric change. And the kingdom of our God, that would be stage three, which is the lightnings. And it's the sons of God moving forward in power. And then the last one, which is the power of his Christ, that would be the fourth stage, which is earthquakes. The change to those places God has targeted. Uh, power is the word exousia. So Christ is carrying out the purpose of the RK level, who are the archangels in heaven. Wow. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. This was uh, really written as a triumphant song, and the conqueror is adored. The salvation and the strength of the church are all to be ascribed to the king and the head of the church, which is Christ. You know, victory was gained by the servants of God who overcame Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. You know, I look at that and I think that there was much courage and patience in their sufferings at this time period. I pray that we are strong too. All right. Bridegroom. Um, I, I want to start with these Old Testament scriptures and, and it's just a small sampling because there are many about, uh, you know, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus, the divine uh, bridegroom, who is seeking his bride in love and entering into a covenant relationship with her. So let's just look at these two. I kind of, when I was looking at them, I kind of thought of them as bookends uh, because they were so descriptive of the bridegroom in the Old Testament. So it starts out with Isaiah 62.5. 
For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. How beautiful, how lovely that is. And then Ezekiel 16.8. Now when I passed by you and looked upon you, behold, your time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with you, saith the Lord God, and thou became mine. Uh, let's look at one more. Um, this is John, and he is professing a great satisfaction that he had in the advancement of Christ, and he's rejoicing in it. And he's saying, God must increase, but I, John, must decrease. Um, John 3, 29, he that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth, that's his stemme, and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And this is my joy. And I, I thought it was chara. I think I've always said chara, but I listened to it, and it's hara. Course, I'm not saying it exactly right, but it means cheerfulness, therefore is fulfilled. So John the Baptist, as the friend of the bridegroom, um, you know, the groomsmen acted as best man. And so he was the agent for the bridegroom in arranging the marriage, and he played an important part in the wedding festivities. Um, and this is according to tradition. Um, the marriage was held in the bridegroom's house. The bridegroom comes for the bride, and he takes her there. Um, the virgins are friends of the bride who meet the bridegroom when he comes for the bride. They form an escort on the way to the bridegroom's house. There are two best men who take the bridegroom to the bride and supervise the union. So let's just keep looking at this. There are also bridegroom attendants who are referred to as the children or the sons of the bride, bride chamber. And these are uh, Jesus' disciples. Uh, Mark 2, verses 18 and 19. And the disciples of John of the Pharisees used to fast, and they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples fast not. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children or the sons of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. All right. Um, chapter 18 of Revelation uh, is next, and it describes the fall of Babylon. And this is the only verse reference in this last book about the bridegroom. I only have this one, which is Christ, and it's the church, and it represents the bride. So let's look at that. Revelation 18, 23. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. Um, you know, I had to lift that out. So when, what they're referencing here is the great city Babylon. That's who thee is. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in you. So again, this is the great city of Babylon. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth. 
for by your sorceries, that's witchcraft, were all nations deceived. So, you know, there's much joy and triumph both in heaven and the earth at the fall of Babylon from, from the angels to the saints. Um, the fall of Babylon was an act of God's judgment and justice. You know, the place would no longer be inhabited by a man. No work would be done there. No comforts enjoyed. No light seen there, but utter darkness and desolation. It was actually the result of her great wickedness, the city of Babylon. Symbolically, the bridegroom is Jesus Christ in loving union with the church, with self-sacrifice on one side and obedient dedication on the other. The wedding days are the first days of Jesus' earthly ministry. In Revelation, the consummation is the wedding and the bride is the heavenly Jerusalem. So that's the end of the bridegroom. And I have one more. And this is my last name for God. And it's simply Father. And in the Greek, Father is the word uh, pater, which means parent. So, God is called the Father of all the stars and all the heavenly celestial bodies because he was their creator. God is called the Father of all rational, intelligent beings, whether angels or men, again, because he is their creator and their guardian. God is called the Father of Christians, those who through Christ have been exalted to an especially close and intimate relationship with God. Now, I want you to think back. There are three categories, called, chosen, and faithful. And there's also saint, the elect, and the true or the trustworthy ones. These are levels in God's kingdom, and this comes from Revelation 7.14. And then the last one, God is called the Father of Jesus Christ as one whom God has united to himself, who is acquainted with his purposes and appointed to carry out the plan of salvation. All right, now, in this next uh, scripture, uh, John's giving an apostolic benediction uh, to people that are reading and understanding the words of prophecy and the divine revelation that he has written down. Um, it's Revelation 13, uh, 13, verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of the prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. For the time uh, is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father 
To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the Lord Jesus Christ is a faithful witness. He is the first begotten from the dead, prince of the kings of the earth, and he's our great friend and savior of the church and of the saints. Um, in our next scripture, um, those who keep themselves pure and undefiled are promised a reward for persevering and, and being victorious. And so let's look at that. It's Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 through 29. And he that overcometh and keepeth, which is Teriel, my works until the end, to him will I give power, exousia, over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So our father has positioned us in a particular place or territory which we are assigned to maintain, which is called our terio. As we partner with God in intercession to take dominion of locations that he has chosen for us. And we exercise exousia that he has granted to really demonstrate that power over the nations. Wow. but it says who overcomes and keeps my works until the end then will you receive this power over the nations and you will rule them what is the end when does that begin is that the beginning of the end times I mean is it just a specific point at the very end when the actual culmination of the battle so to speak happens so that you have the power to overcome the enemy um, when it's all said and done because I mean you've got this end time time frame and when do we get that power I mean it's like when, when we overcome and we keep what we've been given to do and to the end have you ever what is going on that's the million dollar question. We don't know when the end is. <laughs> because, yeah. Yeah, okay. So we have to be faithful till that comes. So we're going to just keep duking it out until the end. <laughs> and then we're going to be given exousia over the nation. I always thought it was coming I mean I hear the word end I just never thought of it as the end I always thought of it as we come to a certain point and we we have this exousia because so I guess we're really just ministering to the nations without this exousia that's what I'm asking I don't think so I, I, I don't think so I think there are other times as well but this is heavy, and this is the book of Revelation, and I don't know the answer to that. No one knows that answer. 
there has been Master much debate and discussion <laughs> through all, right, all these many years of the church so age. I'm looking for answers. <laughs> this is the only time he hadn't talked. I don't think you did. <laughs> it's a shirt. <laughs> well, the Bible talks about still not talking. the thousand year reign. <laughs> right? The Bible talks about the thousand year reign. <laughs> That is power over all the nations. Where the saints are in power for a thousand years. Right? That's now. true. <laughs> We're all <laughs> Take it. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think the the, the telos there is, is more about a completion of what the Father says. We we know that. I mean gives us something and we complete it. Um, and so that's what end is. And that, as Tammy said, could be any number of juncture points. Um, it could be more like a maxim of, you know, you do what I say to do, you complete it, and you gain a measure of exhaustion in the nations. Um, I don't think it necessarily is saying the end of all ends. I think it's an ongoing thing. Even that word to, to Thyatira, which was early on in the in the in the seven churches. Um, I think he was talking about, if I remember right, the, the depths of Satan they were dealing with, and how eventually he's going to break things to their shivers, um, shivery timbers. Um, and like a potter would break his vessel, I, I think I think that whole thing is is a progression of you know doing what God says, gaining power uh, or authority within the nations themselves, where Satan is also dealing with the depths. So if you if you have the depths of Satan, which is what the Scripture speaks about. Um, to me, I think uh, if you're dealing with something on earth with the depths, that means you just keep going down and you're, you're digging stuff out. And the more you dig for gain, regaining the truth that God ordained, the more power you get as you, as you do that. So to me, that whole, that whole thing, the letter, uh, the, the word to that church is, is kind of interesting because then you have, you know, you have uh, Thyatira, which is, wasn't that where uh, Lydia Seller Purple was from? And, you know, she she represented somebody that served the purpose of the, of the apostles or Paul. And God moved her heart. I, I mean, it's, it's just a big mosaic of, of function. Because those seven churches themselves were just independent. They weren't a progression. So they weren't saying, okay, you do your part, then I'll do my part. It wasn't like a relay race. Each of them were dealing with different things regarding the demonic. And, you know, to me, I think it's just like what we're dealing with. The more, the more revelation the Lord gives us and the more obedient we are to what he commands, the telos, the more authority we're given 
in the midst of the nations we go to. To me, you know, I'm not trying to make up an answer. I'm just trying to look at the pieces that are there in that in that letter. Um, so Telos, I guess, just to sum it for me, from my perspective, Telos is not the end of all things. It will be the end of all things, but it is a it's an operational continuance for us of God giving us a word. It's like the peace. It's like the shalom. We go out, we accomplish, we come back. That's that's telos. That telegraph. Tell a woman. Dennis probably told that one. Not around Tandy, of course. But, you know, it, it, the telos is, is just an operative, ongoing thing of what God says. We do it. We come back with a completed thing. And so, yeah, that will be the end of all things. But even is that the end? There is really no end. You know, it's without end. So there really is no end. We keep going in, in, in eternity with him. But that, that telos is, God says something, we go, we do it, we bring it back, complete. And that's, that's the end. But there is no end. <laughs> World without end. Amen. We now surrender this broadcast back to Tammy. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to close now. Our last, I'm going to go to the last scripture. This is Revelation 3.21. This is a good conclusion. It says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit or dwell with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, subdued, and obtained victory, and am set down dwelling with my Father in his throne. Amen? Amen. That's powerful. So thank you for being so attentive. Uh, that concludes my lesson, and I know it was rather heavy, uh, but I <clears throat> couldn't get away from it. So I apologize if you felt a little overwhelmed or you were, I was moving too fast. Um, but uh, any other comments or questions about the names? All right. Message for this triumphant day. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Is this the end?